Welcome, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. All of you joining us on video in the Overflow, Franklin Campus, Perry, Oklahoma. We love you so much. Join in and worship with us. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Around here, it is prom season. Uh, I, I just think that's so much fun. Franklin has had their prom. Uh, all the local high schools had their proms. It's just that time of year. You go to the restaurants in Bowling Green right now on a Friday or Saturday night, you're likely to see guys in tuxes and girls in gowns. I just think that's a hoot. I, I love that. How many of you went to your prom? You remember your prom? Hands up, hands up. Yeah, this is, isn't that just the best part of your whole life? Do you not remember? You don't remember? Some of you really look like you don't. Uh, it's just life. Oh, my goodness, to put on a tuxedo for the first or second time in your whole life, to go out looking so sharp, Taylor, don't you feel like a million bucks? You look like a million bucks, man. Taylor Hardcastle, I hear, cleared the dance floor last night when Thriller came on. Yeah. <laughs> That is awesome. I'm sure Tommy Hardcastle did the same thing uh, 25, 35, 45 years ago, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Oh, it is just such a good time to stay up late. And honestly, I, would, I wish I had a prom for people my age. We could do it right now, could we not? We'd eat dinner about 5 and we'd be done by 10.30. I can't think of any good reasons anymore to stay up all night long. But, but while you can, I say go for it. I just think that's cool. In my day, we did the, the bump and the hustle and, and, and dances like that. These days, they're doing the Dougie. Do you know how to Dougie? You, you, you want to teach you how to Dougie? Uh, awesome. It, it's just awesome. It's fun. It, it is so good. Life it, it is so good. There's prom and there's ball games and there's graduation, all of that right here uh, upon us. There is is eating and playing and working. It's just all so good, mowing our yards, uh, working out in the flowers. It, it is all so good. It's not all good, though. There's, uh, of course, sickness and struggle and, and bills to pay and, and sickness and cancer and divorce. and it, It's our lives. And I guess our question so often is, is how does God fit into it? Lots of times we, as we come to church, as we try to figure things out, we're, our question becomes, where does God fit into all of this? And it's the wrong question. This is what we've got to understand. It's the wrong question. It is not where does God fit into my life. We have to understand that God is over all of this. He's not fitting into it. He's over it. That's what we mean when we talk about Jesus being our Lord. He's not here to fit into your life. He is here to take control of your life. And that's what I want us to consider this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3. I don't know exactly what you think a Christian is. I don't really know exactly how you would describe your own Christian life. But I want us to talk very briefly this morning about your Christian life, about what it means to be a Christian, about what it's always meant to be a Christian. First Peter chapter 3, starting verse 13. Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Their threats. Who are we talking about? Whose threats? The world, absolutely the world, the, 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 the government, anybody who would intimidate you because of your faith. Verse 15, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Underline those words, worship Christ as Lord of your life. You must, the scripture says. 
Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Take your seats. Back in April, uh, Monday night, the 11th, uh, 7.30 p.m., they say, um, there's a young man. His name is Hassan. Hassan Adawe Adan. Um, He's 21 years old, lived with his family in Somalia. Hassan had just gotten home. He'd just come into his mother's house when uh, militants arrived, uh, armed men. They dragged him out into his yard. And for 10 minutes, they questioned him. Um, basically, what they wanted him to do was say he was not a Christian. But, but he was. A new Christian, a brand new Christian. Hassan had just gotten saved in, in December. This group of militants in Somalia, they, they, want, they want Somalia to be a place where there are no Christians at all. And they've made that their, their aim. And so they had somehow found out that Hassan was, was a Christian and and so they went to his house at 7.30 at night and dragged him out into the yard. And for 10 minutes, they gave him the opportunity to say he wasn't a Christian, to deny Christ. He would not do that. Now, you let that sink in. It would be very easy words to say. Easy simply to say, okay, I'm not a Christian. Because in his heart, he could still be a Christian. All they have to do is just lie to them. And that's honestly all they wanted. He just needed to say that he didn't know Jesus, that he didn't love Jesus. I mean, the words would be easy to say. But he would not say the words. So they shot him. Left him in his mother's yard. How do, you, how do we explain a young man like that? The thing is, in, in, in his neighborhood, in January, there was a young mother named, named Asha Umberwe. She has four children, 12, 8, 6, and 4. She was a new Christian, too. And they pulled her out in front of her children and in front of her neighbors. Gave her the same ultimatum to deny that she knew Jesus. And she just wouldn't do it. She just would not say that she did not know Christ. And they grabbed her by the hair and raised her chin up and, and slit her throat in front of her kids. They say her kids still cry for her. How do we explain how do we explain people like this, women like Asha and, and men like Hassan? How do we explain 
people of such courage and, and commitment to Christ, how do we explain that, that kind of, of witness? How do we explain those kinds of churches? The church in Somalia now is, is, is terrified because it's obvious that they have informants in the fellowship, that there's somebody who shows up when they get together in secret. There's somebody who shows up and takes names and turns those names in. So every time they gather, it's dangerous. Every time they have church, it's dangerous. So how do you explain Men and women, boys and girls, who go to church when it's dangerous. Well, you read the Bible. Because honestly, the explanation for Hassan and Asha and all of the Christians around the world who serve Christ when it's dangerous, the explanation for their life is clear in Scripture. It's positively, absolutely clear. So honestly, if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, and if you have the foggiest idea in the world what it means to be a Christian, I don't need to explain it to you. I don't need to explain to you why they would not deny knowing Christ, even if it means their death, even if their throat is slit in front of their crying children. I don't have to explain it to you. What needs an explanation would be people like us. Let's be honest. If you read the New Testament about what it means to be a Christian, you don't have trouble understanding those people. It's people like us that honestly need an explanation. It, it's people like us who, who, it's not dangerous to go to church, it's just hard. We just consider it hard. It, it, it's hard sometimes to stay awake. It's, it's hard sometimes to get up and get nice clothes on. Honestly, honestly. We're the ones who need explaining. It is our lives. It is our kind of Christianity which somehow is so foreign to what is plain in the words of Scripture. So obvious in these pages, the way we live for Christ seems to be very, very far from the way Scripture talks about a life in Christ. And honestly, the way much of the world would have to live if they choose to take the name of Christ. It is our lives that need explaining. Something's happened to the gospel in the United States. Something's happened to the gospel, honestly, in our lifetimes. It's been repackaged. It's honestly been, been sort of rebranded, re-explained. And, and honestly, the way most of us, and I include myself, God help me, the way we present the gospel, the way we lead people to know and serve Christ, it's different it's very different. Now, I know that for you and me, it seems normal, but there's something not normal about it. We have made becoming a Christian, we have made following Christ simply a decision that you make. And that's the, way, the language that we use. It's a decision that you need to make to receive Christ. And that's more or less the way we talk about it. That you simply need to say a prayer 
that, that you simply need to call upon the name of Jesus and receive him and, and you'll be saved. Now, I know that that sounds exactly right to you because honestly, God help me, that's usually the way I explain it. The problem is what we end up with is a kind of Christian life that looks nothing like the Christian life you see in Scripture. The life that you live, the life that I live, is so far from genuine commitment. And the thing is, the way we package salvation, the way we preach it, we make it altogether possible for you to have salvation without repentance, the scripture is clear that, that repentance is necessary for salvation, but we absolutely remove that part. All you have to do, honestly, is walk the aisle, shake my hand, say a prayer, and we'll say you're good. But that's not the kind of salvation that scripture offers. There's no salvation without repentance. There's no salvation without a, a life of pursuit of holiness, My uh, cell phone is, is pretty lame, uh, mostly because I, I, I try to keep it pretty simple. Uh, I don't have a lot of junk on it. I don't, I don't want a lot of apps, applications. I, I just don't use them. But a while back on a whim, I was bored at home. I had Wi-Fi, and I loaded a game called Supersonic. It was free, which was the best part. It was free. You know, a lot of apps are free, and, and I like that about it. I like free stuff. So do you. I love free stuff. I downloaded Supersonic. It's just this weird little game. You, you hold your phone like this, and, and it's, like you're, it's like you're flying through tunnels. And, but you're avoiding these obstacles and trying to grab the green balls. And actually, it gets pretty awesome the longer you play it. So I'm just playing. And, and it's, it's a lot of this kind of stuff. It's just with your phone. But I tell you, it's free. And the thing is, I can do this, and I'm a doofus, but I can actually play this game, and I'm getting pretty good. But as I play Supersonic, I'm frequently reminded at the end of a game when I get to a certain level, I'm reminded if you like the free version, if you like the free version, you'll love the paid version. Yeah, the, the paid version. Now, what does the paid version involve? The paid version, first off, involves paying. Okay, they lost me at paying. You understand? You have to pay for the paid version, but then they promise that with the paid version, I will have multiple levels of difficulty. Okay? They obviously don't know who they're talking to. With the paid version, I can actually pay money and it gets harder. Okay? Not interested. Not interested. What I have is rather marvelous for me. It is free and it is Easy. Free and easy are good words for me. Free and easy. Why would I pay money when what I have, what I already have, is free and easy? Why would I upgrade when I am very, very satisfied with the present version of supersonic, free and easy? I bring this up because this is precisely the way a lot of people, and I'll go so far as to say a lot of you think about salvation. At some point, you took on a free and easy version of it. A free and easy version. And this suits you very, very well. In your mind, you've gotten just enough religion, just enough Christianity, where you feel like your sins are forgiven, and you feel like you're going to heaven. And honestly, that's all you want. 
That is all you want. Now, you are vaguely aware of other Christians, another kind of Christian who lives a very different kind of life from you, but you're not interested. You have everything that you feel like you need from Christ with the free and easy version. You're not interested in an upgrade because in your mind, an upgrade will simply cost you more and be more difficult. What I want to offer you today is perhaps there really is no free and easy version. Now, I'm not saying that salvation is not by grace. It it is. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation, not a thing you can do to buy God's grace. Salvation is a free gift of God, but the Christian life is costly and difficult, and you don't get salvation without the Christian life that follows. If you have something that you call salvation that is not turning into a a Christian kind of life, then I'm telling you, I'm not sure you have salvation at all. That kind of version is not offered in Scripture. There is no salvation apart from repentance. There is no justification apart from sanctification, as they would say. The kind of Christian life that so many of, of our neighbors try to live, there's nothing like that offered in Scripture. People who just want to be a Christian in name only. They just want to feel Christian, call themselves Christian, but they're not interested at all in what Jesus actually has to offer. The book of Peter, he's talking to real Christians. He's talking to real Christians. I know when I say that, you don't like that language because I'm implying that if there are real Christians, there must be false Christians. And I would say there are. I would really say that there are. And I just say that because as a pastor, I talk to people a lot about their their spiritual experiences, about their Christian faith. And I can't tell you how many times I I hear the same kind of testimony. I'll hear somebody say, Brother Tim, you know, I, I... I I got saved when I was a kid. I I was at church camp on a Thursday night, and I had an experience with the Lord, and and I got saved and baptized, but but honestly, nothing changed. But then in my 20s, uh, I had another kind of experience, and at that point, it it became very, very real to me. So, So when was I saved? Was I saved when I was a kid? And and I don't know how to answer that. I, I can't answer that. I just know that there are a whole lot of people that had some sort of experience way back when that made no visible, no spiritual, no real difference in their lives. And if that's the kind of experience you're going back to and calling salvation, I seriously want you to question it. I'm not the one to question it. I will never be the judge of your heart. But if whatever you point back to as the moment when you feel like you became a Christian, if there was no difference in your life, if there's been no fruit of repentance in all the years since, I'm begging you to question it. Go back. Ask yourself what happened. Ask yourself if you've truly had a saving, life-transforming experience with Christ because that's the only kind of salvation that the Bible speaks of transformation, a whole new creation, a turning from sin. If, if that's not what you're talking about, then you're not talking about salvation. Peter's talking about real Christians. He's talking to real Christians. And notice what their lives are like. It's, honestly, it's a life of suffering. Now, in the church that Peter's writing, we really don't think that they were losing their lives yet. But the persecution was heating up. 
In other words, when they became a Christian, there were neighbors, there was a whole community, there was a culture that was beginning to despise them simply for their faith. And they were beginning to live with that. Now, I know in our culture, we have Christians who want to whine and say that we're persecuted, but we're not. We're not. You may get your, your Christian feelings hurt sometimes. You, you may get really worried that they're going to take in God we trust off the money. But taking in God we trust off the money is not the same as holding a gun to your head or slashing your mama's throat. Do you understand? We don't know persecution. We don't know it. But in the Peter's church, they were beginning to feel the heat. But notice what he says. Notice what the Christian life is like. He says, don't worry about those who would want to threaten you. Don't worry about those who would do you harm because you're trying to please the Lord and do good. Don't worry or be afraid of their threats. What he says there is do not be afraid of their intimidation. Do not be intimidated by the world of people who don't know Christ. Now, the one thing we probably do have in common with the church in Peter's day is that, honestly, that number of genuine, real Christians is always a minority. It's always a minority. And when you really begin to live for Christ, to let him take control of your life, you will suddenly be going against the grain of everything that your culture is telling you. And honestly, that's what holds a whole lot of you back. You have in you this desire, perhaps, to, to please the Lord and to know the Lord, but you have this stronger desire to be well-liked and to be accepted in the community. You don't want to be weird. And people tend to think that very, very serious Christians are a little bit weird. You'd rather be normal than Christian. And I just want you to know you do have that option. You can choose to be like the world. Or you can choose to be a Christian, but, but you can't do both. Do you understand? It's not an option. You can't choose both. You cannot serve two masters, the scripture says. you understand? Notice the key, and it's the verse I want you to focus on, verse 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. What he says there is, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. What we're talking about in your heart, and again, that's, that's a, a metaphorical way of saying something about your inward life. I know that for the most part, people listening to my voice are sitting in church or, or, or otherwise outwardly identified as Christians. But you need to understand that when it comes to being a Christian, a real Christian, we're not talking about how you spend your Sunday morning. We're not talking about showing up in church. We're not so much talking about outward things. Certainly, a genuine relationship with Christ affects your behavior every single day. I'm not saying that. But there must be something genuine inside, some inward, solid, real, authentic faith. It's in your heart. Peter says. And honestly, for a lot of people, their Christianity is just about words. 
in, in, in this building, in, in this sanctuary this morning, in this worship service, we sung a lot of hymns about Jesus being the Lord. You've used the word Lord probably a dozen, maybe two dozen times, just in the course of this hour, just in the singing. But for a whole lot of you, let's be honest, just words. It was just a word. You were singing about Jesus as Lord, but in your heart, you've never set him apart as Lord. And this is what I want you to understand. It's not about what your mouth says. It's about what your life shows. It's about what is true in your heart. And honestly, what is true in your heart is that Jesus is not Lord. When we talk about lordship, simply we're talking about control. We're talking about control. And so to say that Jesus is the Lord of your life is genuinely to give him total control of your life. Total control of your decisions, total control of every aspect, every single minute detail of your life. Jesus becomes over all of that. You give him control. If Jesus does not have control of your life, then listen to me. Whatever has control, that's your Lord. That's the one you serve, whoever has the control of your life. So if in your life all your decisions are pretty much based on money, If money controls you, then listen to me, you're worshiping money. Money is the Lord of your life. If in your life you only make decisions based on what will make you popular at school, what's going to earn you more Facebook friends, then listen to me, popularity is the Lord of your life. It's that simple. Whatever controls you. If it's your sexual desire, if all of your decisions are based on sexual desire, then listen to me. You're serving your body. You're serving sexual desire as Lord of your life. How twisted is that? But it's true for many of you. If you make your decisions based on your next sexual experience, then listen to me. You're worshiping your body. You're worshiping sexuality. Have a person or relationship that controls all of your decisions. If it's your job, if it's success in school, if it's simply being lazy, whatever it is that controls you, that's your Lord. Peter says in your heart you have to set apart Christ, Jesus as Lord. And we're talking about the normal Christian life. We're not talking about those who want an upgrade. Those who want to be super Christians, maybe missionaries or pastors or martyrs in Somalia. There's not some sort of two-track method of salvation. One for people who want to blend in with the world and another for people who, who want to be serious about it. I'm telling you, there is one way of salvation and that way is Jesus And if you accept him as Savior, he's going to have to be your Lord. In your heart, you must set apart Christ as Lord. He will not settle for just giving you the fuzzies and the shivers. And honestly, some people, when it comes to Christian faith, they just want emotional experiences and so when it comes to Jesus, they just want a relationship with Jesus that will, that will help them to feel good, have pleasant feelings, either in church or, or elsewhere. They're really only interested in, in this emotional kind of connection to Christ. This is a trap that many, many of us fall into when we're younger in, in high school or college because at that point in our lives, emotions are very real and very new and very powerful. When you're younger, those emotions are are all fresh, and there's this incredible power that they have, and we begin to make a lot of decisions. We really begin to live our lives just trying to go from one emotional high to, to the next. 
And that's one thing when you're younger, but, but I'm telling you, to, to call Christ your Lord is not simply to seek some sort of emotional experience. Every day of your life is not going to be like Thursday night at, at youth camp. Do you understand? It's not going to be that way. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is truly set apart as the Lord over your whole life, often following him will, will force you to go against your feelings, Honestly, making a decision in order to give Jesus control will sometimes force you to go in the opposite direction of, of many of the things that have given you positive feelings. It's not about feelings. Having Jesus as Lord of your life is not about having the fuzzies and the shivers when you come into church and you can throw up your hands and you can sing. It certainly, certainly can involve that. But if that's all you're interested in, Jesus is not signing up for that. You see, when Jesus comes into your life, he's not going to change himself to suit you. You're going to have to change yourself to suit him. You understand? You change your life. You let him change your life in order to accommodate him. He is the Lord. He is the master. You are the servant. It's not going to be an emotional thing. If you're thinking that that's all it is, then you're obviously not interested in lordship. It's not just about emotions. And honestly, it's not just about having Jesus solve your problems. I, I know a lot of us really enjoy that kind of Christ is the answer faith. And, and honestly, he is. Jesus is truly the answer to, to your problems. But what we tend to forget is that our problems are usually not our problem. We are really not very good at determining what our true problems are. And so the problem is we begin wanting Jesus to fix things for us, to solve things for us. And what Jesus is trying to do is much deeper, much more important. It has much more eternal significance in whatever it is you're trying to get Jesus to fix for you. You understand? You're wanting Jesus just to take care of your monthly electric bill. Or you're just wanting Jesus to fix your marriage. Or you're just wanting Jesus to fix your kids. Or you're just wanting Jesus to help you get a 24 on the ACT. You're just wanting Jesus to solve your problems. But I'm telling you, your problems are not your problem. Jesus does want to address your problems, but he's working so much more surgically deep in your heart, you're usually not interested in what he wants to do. But do you understand, if all you want is a Jesus that solves your problems, when you don't have problems, you don't think you need Jesus. Do you understand? When you don't have problems, you don't think you need him. And when you do have problems, you get frustrated with him because he won't jump through the hoops of your life. Because he won't do what you want him to do. You see, you still want to be in control. You want him simply to answer your prayers and follow your to-do list. You still are not interested in having a Lord. You want to be the Lord. Jesus is not signing up for that for you. Do you understand? In your heart, you set apart Christ as Lord. There can only be one Lord. That means you have to give up control. Remember the old bumper sticker? God is my co-pilot. Think about that. My co-pilot. Yeah. Let me just tell you, Jesus is not going to be your co-pilot. What's the co-pilot? Like the little junior pilot on the airplane. In case the real pilot, you know, passes out, has a heart attack, or falls out of the plane, then the co-pilot will take control. You understand? 
God is my co-pilot. That's what you wish. You just wish that God would just kind of ride along, that God would ride shotgun with you, and you could still do all the steering. You can determine everything about it, and then if you get a little tired or a little weary, then you can turn the controls over to, to God for just a little while until you decide to take control again. I'm telling you, he is not going to be your co-pilot. He's not going to be your co-pilot. If he's going to be in your life, he's going to be Lord of your life. And if he's not going to be Lord, he's not going to be in your life. Do you understand? He's not going to change himself to please you. You must allow him to change you to please him. What happened to the gospel? What happened to genuine repentance? What happened to people in tears and with brokenness giving their hearts to Christ and allowing Christ to do a miracle of transformation in their lives? What happened to that? What happened to churches that earnestly sought the will of the Lord and, and, and honestly surrendered to the will of the Lord? What happened to people who were committed and, and courageous? What happened to real Christians? I, I don't know. It's very, very difficult to find them in the church of today. Let's just be that honest. It's very, very difficult to find anything that looks like the real thing because the only place you find the real thing is in the place in the heart where Christ is Lord. So what about your heart? You want to call yourself a Christian? It's not my place to judge that. But here's a simple test. Look in your heart. See who the Lord is. Examine your life. Ask yourself, who has control? Scripture says, if you shall Confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It begins with the confession of lordship. Can't just be empty words. When you confess him as Lord, there has to be a, a rearrangement of your heart so that you step off of the throne of your life and he sits down on the throne of your life. It's about control. Around the world, there are Christians who die for the privilege of saying that Jesus is the Lord of their lives. I know that some of you find that hard to understand, but please listen to me. It's a whole lot easier to read the Bible and explain them than it is to read the Bible, look at your life, and explain you with you calling yourself a Christian. God help us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, Across the world, there's a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old, 6-year-old and a 4-year-old. 
who will never be able to forget the sight of their mama having her throat slit in front of their eyes. Lord, I pray that they will soon be able to forget that image, but I pray, Lord, that they will always remember the name of Jesus that was on her lips when she died. The name of Jesus that she would not deny. Oh, Lord, it is so difficult for us to understand. It is so beyond us, Lord. And some of us, we call ourselves Christians. We, we, we want to think that we're somehow committed, Lord, but our commitment is so thin. It takes so little, Lord, to make us to deny you with our mouths and our lives. Oh, Lord Jesus, in the larger scheme of things, looking across your great body, the great church in the world, Lord, there is something so weak and anemic about churches like ours, Lord, about people like us who have grown so comfortable and so very spoiled, Lord, in our expectations. Jesus, I pray that in our hearts, every single one of us, Lord, who wants to claim your name, I pray, Lord, that we would set you apart as Lord of our lives. Lord, help us to give up that incredible fight we have in us, Lord, to be in control. Help us, Lord, simply to surrender our entire lives, our thought life, our behaviors, our family life. Lord, help us to surrender it all to you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to be Christians, but not just in name only, Lord, not just on Sunday only. We want something real, something genuine, something life-changing in our hearts. So help us, Lord, today to set you apart as Lord. Lord, nothing else will ever, Lord, bring us to salvation except this willingness to die to ourselves and live for you. Lord Jesus, let us die to ourselves and live for you. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.